So, Lord, we, we come to you because it, it really is the only place to go. Sometimes, uh, sometimes in life we think that we're capable enough to make it on our own. And because uh, you have given us gifts and you've given us abilities and uh, certain aptitudes, and we've enjoyed some success in some areas. But the real fact of the matter is this, is that without you, we can't make it a single step. We're not nearly as bright as we think we are. We're not nearly as capable as we think we are. And there are times in life when you will remind us of that. There are times in life when you will absolutely pull the rug out from under us. Uh, not, not Satan will do it, you will do it. Because um, you're trying to get our attention. And you're trying to let us see what is really important in life. And, uh, and for most of us, until the bottom falls out, we have a tendency not to look at you and not to look up. And then when things fall apart, we begin asking why. Uh, because we didn't expect life to be like this, and we didn't expect life to be this hard. And uh, uh, everything's supposed to work in life. We're supposed to work hard, and we're supposed to accumulate, and we're supposed to... Uh, make it financially and be successful in our families, in our career, in our jobs, and we're supposed to have um, all the money put away for retirement and, you know, have the house paid off and have the kids through college. And We're just supposed to do it right, Lord, but we can't do it right. The fact of the matter is we can't do it. And, uh, and, and the guys that are doing it right and everything's working for them, quite frankly, they're cursed because they think they don't need you, so many of those guys. So, Lord, it is really... Uh, a good thing when you pull the rug out from under us sometimes because it gets our attention and what it'll do is save our lives. And you have promised that if we'll turn to you, you will give us what we need all the way through to the end. The scriptures tell us that you will carry us until death. Uh, you, you told the, the men of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter one that I will carry you as a son carries his little boy. And you'll do that for us all the way to life. And our tendency, Lord, is to trust in our bank accounts or in our stocks and the stock market's, you know, going crazy now. We're all excited about that. But it could absolutely fall next week. We don't know. Uh, but with you, Lord, you're never up and you're never down. You're stable and you're consistent. And your love is always there for us. And your availability and your concern. You never drop us. Never. We may be disappointed by the way life is turning out, but Lord, sometimes it just has to be that way so that we turn to you. So for the guys that are here tonight and the bottom has dropped out, I pray that they will not panic, but I pray that they'll turn to you and find that you are abundantly available for help in tight places that you'll never leave them, you'll never forsake them. You've got your eye on them. You know what's going on. You know the pressures. You understand it all. And show them your greatness and, 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 and give them a well-timed help. I was reading this morning in Psalm 69, and he says, I am in distress. Answer me quickly. And I pray for guys tonight, Lord, that are in distress, that you'd give them an answer to encourage their hearts, just to let them know, just to remind them that you're with them. For those of us who aren't there right now, we're grateful. 
we'll probably be there again at some point just because we'll need it. We, we don't fear that. We're not worried about it. Our, our dads, many of us had great dads who loved us and disciplined us. You're the greatest dad of all. You give us precisely what we need. We get out of line, we get a little arrogant, you give us a couple whacks on the rear end. Best thing ever happened to us. But you love us and you pick us up, you reassure us, you take care of us, and uh, you're going to get us home. We're so grateful that we know you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're doing this study called Snapshots of Stupid. And we're looking at different guys in the scripture who have done stupid things. Now, aren't you, aren't you glad? I, I'm glad that my story is not in the Bible. Because someone could preach for eight years on my stupid. Um, as I'm looking at this study and as I'm working it over, here, here's what's coming clear to me. I think there are two kinds of stupid in the Bible. I think the first kind of stupid, and we're going to see it tonight, because what we're going to see tonight is an episode out of 1 Samuel 25. And there are going to be three people. There are going to be two men and there's going to be one woman. Uh, the two men represent the two different kinds of stupid that I see throughout the scripture. The first kind of stupid that I see in the Bible is I see permanent stupid. Men who are permanently stupid and never get over it. We looked at Saul. Was it last week we looked at Saul? Saul was permanently stupid. He just was. I mean, the guy's life was a waste because he knew the truth. He was made king. He'd been given great gifts by God, but he absolutely refused to do it God's way. He, he was a strong-willed adolescent who never grew up, and he was bound and determined to do it his way instead of God's way. And so his life went from bad to worse. Uh, didn't have to be that way. That's stupid. I, I think I used the quote the first night from Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday said that a sinner can repent, but stupid is forever. What he was talking about, now listen, we're all stupid. We've all done stupid things. But what he was talking about is permanent stupid. Permanent stupid never recognizes that you're stupid. It never realizes that you're stubborn. It never realizes that 95% of what happens to you is your own fault. Uh, all right, that's the first category. Permanent stupid. What's the second kind of stupid? It's what I call teachable stupid. Teachable stupid is you do something stupid and you kicked yourself, and you can't believe you did it. But you know what? You learn from it. Now, sometimes you don't learn the first time. Uh, let's put it this way. You usually don't learn the first time. <laughs> and sometimes you don't learn the second time. You think back to high school. Is it not amazing that any of us lived to be 18? Honestly? Because you're 16 and they hand you that license? I mean, I, I bet you every guy in this room can look back and see the providence of Almighty God that you're, you were alive at 18. Because you, you, you were stupid. Uh, 
And then you get in your 20s. And, and usually it's a little bit more stupid. And hopefully we're learning, but, the, but here's the thing. Whether it's in your 20s or your 30s or your 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. If there's a point in our lives where the Spirit of God's working and we learn from the stupid, that's okay. That, that's, that's the whole point. That's the whole purpose. Um, if you're teachable, you can learn from your errors and your mistakes. And, and guess what? Guess what? You can recover. See, what happens is the older we get, uh, and, and when bad things happen to us, the older we get, we, we think it's over. We think we can never recover. If we had 40 or 50 years left, we could recover from our mistakes. Um, it makes sense. You make a mistake and you got 40 or 50 years left. You make a bad financial mistake in your 20s. Well, you know, you got a lot of time to recover. But if you make a mistake in your family or if you make a mistake financially, and, uh, and as I'm talking to you, I'm actually flipping through the Old Testament because I'm trying to find a verse and I don't remember where it is and I'm hoping I'll come across it. So that's what I'm trying to do. But when you're in your 20s or 30s or 40s, you know, you've got time, but when you're 50, 60, 70, and you make a mistake, you think, I'll never recover. This, 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 is, this is beyond hope. I think I'm getting warm here. I just found it. Here's the verse. Joel chapter 2 basically says this. The years which the locusts have eaten. Now remember, these people lived in an agricultural region. So you plant your crops and you water as best you can, but there's really not much water for irrigation, so you're dependent on rainfall. And, uh, and you need that crop to come through. And, and then guess what? The locusts show up, and they wipe you out. Then they wipe you out a second year, and they wipe you out a third year, and you wipe you out a fourth year, and you're in your 50s or 60s. You know what? You're toast, man. It's over for you. You know what God said in Joel 2, verse 25? Catch this. He says, the years which the locusts have eaten... I will restore. Man, that's so full of hope. You guys know I love Martin Lloyd-Jones, great preacher in London, died in 1981. You know what Martin Lloyd-Jones said when he was teaching on that verse? Martin Lloyd-Jones said, let me tell you what that verse means. That verse means this, that God can give you 10 years in one year. You lose 10 years crop, God can give you 10 years crop in one year. And so you think it's hopeless. It's not hopeless because you know Christ. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. He can do it. You say, well, I'm not sure he will do it. Well, I know. But he can do it. And if it's the best thing for you, you know what he'll do? He'll do it for you. He'll move heaven and hell for you. But not if you are permanent stupid. He's not going to do a cotton-picking thing for you. Because you're an idiot, and you won't come to him. Now, where else can you go on a Wednesday night and have someone speak to you so lovingly and kindly and warmly and make you feel so good about yourself? By the way, Oprah's going to be here next Wednesday night. And we're real excited. Yeah, that'll be great. Have some heresy in here. It'll be wonderful. Uh, let's go to 1 Samuel 25. 
Okay, so here, here's what we're saying, guys. We don't want to be permanent stupid. We want to be teachable stupid. Okay? So 1 Samuel. If you're new to your Bible, that's, that's on the left side somewhere. If you're in Psalms, keep going left. If you find Joshua, go to the right. You'll find it. You're getting warm. 1 Samuel 25. Now, here's the deal. We're looking at an episode out of the life of David. And I'm going to kind of helicopter this to give you the big picture. David's on the run from Saul. Saul was the first king. But as we saw last week, because Saul would not do it God's way, and he would not wait on God, Samuel said, you go and you, make this, uh, you wait for me, and, and I'm going to make a sacrifice. And it was seven days. Well, he didn't show up at seven days because the Lord held him up for some reason. We, we don't know what happened. And Saul, in his impulsiveness, you know, he's got pressure, and he's got the Philistines hanging around him. He's got guys leaving him, and he thinks, hey, you know what? Somebody's got to do something. So what he does is he goes ahead and does the sacrifice himself. And as soon as he's done making the sacrifice, guess who shows up? Samuel. See, he would not wait on God. He was a lousy leader. God's men have got to wait on God. When God says move, you move. When God says wait, you wait. And waiting is the hardest thing in the Christian life. It's tough to wait on God. He wouldn't wait on God. So Samuel said, Here's what, hey, you know what, pal? You had your shot. And guess what? The kingdom's been removed from you. So what's going to happen is God's going to anoint someone else to be king of Israel, a guy by the name of David, this young boy. And it was said of David, he was a man after God's own heart. When, when Saul figured out, and I'm jumping here, when Saul figured out that David was going to be the next king, now Saul's still got the throne. Well, he decides, I'll take care of this kid, and he's going to kill him. So David's on the run for a number of years, and Saul's trying to kill him, and and. David's a step ahead of this guy. What's happening in 1 Samuel 25 is that Saul is trying to kill David. That's 1 Samuel 24. At En Gedi, he's got uh, how many men? 3,000 men going after David. 1 Samuel 25, uh, it says in verse 2, now we're going to meet this guy named Nabal. All right, now Nabal, let me tell you about Nabal. He is permanent stupid. That's who this guy is. Let's read the text. There was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the man's name was Nabal. And his wife's name was Abigail. The woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. So the first thing we ask is, wait a minute. Here's this smart, attractive, beautiful woman. How does she get hooked up with a guy like this? Probably through an arranged marriage when she was young. We don't know for sure, but that was common back in these days. Probably as a little girl, it was arranged by her father. And Nabal's father, they get married. So she's stuck with this guy, and he's a loser. But she's a godly woman and a beautiful woman. It says in verse 4, David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing a sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, Have a long life. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son, David. Now, there's, 
Let, let, me, let, me, let me give you a little background on what's going on here. David and his men, he's got about 600 guys. They're out in this area where, where Nabal is grazing all of his sheep and his goats and his livestock. Now, in this particular area of Israel, marauding bands of Philistines would come in and take sheep and take livestock. It happened all the time. If you remember, that happened to Job in Job chapter 1. What's happened is David and his men have not taken anything from Nabal. What they have done in actuality is that they have protected his, his uh, flocks and his livestock. Uh, they have actually been on guard. And as a result, he hasn't lost a sheep. They haven't taken a sheep to eat. And no one has plundered his flock because they've been there. 600 mighty men. Um, uh, Earl Rodmacher writes on this. He says, Nabal lived in a wilderness area and owned thousands of and go- sheep and goats. And so it was a prime target for thieves. David and his men had generously protected Nabal's flocks and possessions. Now, we're going to see this in just a minute. Since it was the time of sheep shearing, Nabal would have had plenty of cash from the sale of wool to reward David and his men for their services. Um, if, if you um, continue with the story here, basically, David's saying, hey, I've got to provision my men. We haven't taken anything. Uh, Perhaps you could help me provision my guys, and we'd be glad to continue to assist you. That's basically what he's saying. All right, watch the response here. Um, verse 9. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name. Then they waited. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? Uh, and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Now let me tell you something. This was a big-time insult. He knew who David was. He knew David, as everybody knew in Israel, was the anointed future king of Israel. He knew that. He, he's just all over David. Oh, he's, well, David, who is he, some runaway slave? No, he's the anointed king of Israel. That's who he is. Verse 11, shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered from my shears and give it to men whose origin I do not know? He knew their origin. He knew who they were. He's greedy. He's a shark. He knew full well David's guys were out there, and he knew what they were doing. But when it comes time to show appreciation, he won't do it. You've done business with people like this. You know, some guys are just a delight to do business with. You know, we've talked about this before. It used to be you do business on a handshake. Man, you know, Frisco, you know, on these intersections, they got these um, deals engraved these, uh, about the cattle drives, and you don't have time to read them because the lights are, are, are not, you know, don't give you enough time, and you get about halfway through it, and you got to move on. Um, it's fascinating stuff, these cattle drives. But you had kids that were 22 years old, some of them, driving cattle. You know, they might have two, 3,000 head of cattle. And they go up there and they meet a buyer and they, they do business with one handshake. That was it. And if you didn't come through with what you said, the word got around real quick. And you know what? You were finished. This Nabal guy wouldn't have lasted real long in Texas back then on those cattle drives. Uh, verse 12. So David's young men retraced their way and went back and they came and told him according to all these words. Uh, this, this Nabal guy, it says in verse 3, he was harsh and evil in his dealings. 
But it also tells us that he was very rich. You know what Nabal needed in his life? He needed to have his life fall apart. That's what he needed. We look at people that are rich and we look at people that are wealthy and that have everything and have absolutely no money worries and have no worries for the future. And we think those guys have got it made. And most of them are going to hell because they think they don't need Christ. Not, not all of them. There are exceptions. There are guys that love the Lord and God's blessed them. And the reason God's blessed them is that God can trust them because they love Christ and they don't love money. But you know what I'm talking about. Wealthy, wealthy people, and they have no worries, and they, you know, they got the best of everything, and you know, go to France for lunch, and you know, go to Hawaii to play golf. You know what I'm talking about? You know, they better enjoy it while they can. And oftentimes we, we look at those guys and say, man, what a life. Boy, that must be great. That must be wonderful. And you know what they really need? They need the bottom to fall out of their lives so that they might look up. It'd be the best thing that ever happened to them was to lose what they have. It'd be the best thing that ever happened to them to get wiped out financially. Because then they might call out to God and say, I can't make it without God. But you see, they're blinded. And in their stupidity, they think all of this, this Nabal guy thought all of this was because of him. Deuteronomy 8.18 says, it is the Lord who gives you the power to make wealth. So if you've got it, where did it come from? It came from the Lord. Now, this guy would not acknowledge that. He was evil. He was harsh in his dealings. He was stupid. Now, we're going to see more about Nabal in a moment. If you don't think he's permanent stupid, we're going to prove it, and his wife's going to prove it. And the guys that work for him are going to prove it. All right, now we're going to shift to teachable stupid. All right, Nabal is permanent stupid. But now we're going to see David. And David is going to be our example of teachable stupid. David is about to kick in the stupid here. All right? Now, I want you to know what he does. So the, the young guys come back to David in verse 12, and they came and they told him according to all these words. Verse 13, David said to his men, strap on your sword. So each man girded on his sword. David also girded on his sword, and about 400 men went up behind David, while 200 stayed with the baggage. David says, he said what? And he, he did what? And what did he say about me and about where I come from and my guys? After we were out there night and day, fighting off the marauders, nobody touched, we didn't touch, he said, what? Strap it up, boys, we're going to town. That's exactly what he said. He's going in and he's going to kill this sucker, David is. Now, you know what? That might be a little bit of an overreaction. <laughs> but you know what this guy did? He pushed his button. Isn't that funny how that can happen to us? A small thing, a relatively small thing, can just set you off. What's interesting about this to me is that in chapter 24, David had just shown mercy and compassion and kindness to the very man that was trying to kill him. But here a guy just says something about him, and he's strapping on the sword. And he's not going to kill Nabal. He's going to kill all his men. A.W. Pink. This guy's pretty good. This is his thing on the life of David. Um, this guy's very thorough. 
He says, I, I don't have time to give you all this stuff, but he's got some good stuff here. Um, he has a chapter called David's Affront from Nabal. Um, I want to read the whole thing to you. I'm, I'm, I'm cutting and pasting and editing here. Um, basically, here's what he points out. In 1 Samuel 24, you remember the story, uh, David's at En Gedi. This is one of the reasons you want to go to Israel, to go to En Gedi. It's down by the Dead Sea. It's very harsh. It's very hot. There's not a tree. There's not a blade of grass anywhere. But about four or five miles up north of the Dead Sea, on the west side of the Dead Sea, you get into the Judean foothills. And there's an oasis up there called En Gedi. And you can hike it today. And it, it's going up the side of, of the foothills. And it's very rocky. And there are two canyons. And there's this free-flowing, beautiful, big stream that comes down. And you hike up about 300 yards, and big boulders and rocks. And as you hike up, you get about three, 400 yards up, and here's this beautiful waterfall coming down. It's probably 8, 10 feet high. Just, I mean, and it's hot. I was there in July. It was just hot as blazes. And you can get in that water, and you can even drink the water. It's just pure. It's just wonderful. And then you hike some more, and you go up about another six, seven, eight hundred yards, and there's another waterfall. And there's a shallow pool, and you people are lounging out. It's just great, and this water's coming down from probably 20 feet. And then you go up about another, uh, I'd say, half mile, and there's a waterfall that drops about, mm, I don't know, 40, 50 feet. And, it's real, and, and, and as you're hiking up, it's a very narrow canyon, and probably the width at the widest, I'm going to say it'd be 150, 200 yards, very narrow. And probably two, 300 feet high on both sides. And there are caves everywhere. Caves and caves and caves. And if you look in 1 Samuel 24, that's where David hid from Saul. And, and Saul had 3,000 guys up there looking for David. Now, now, when you're hiking up there, you can see, you, you, you could go right by this giant boulder, and there could be 40 guys right here, and you never know they were there. When we got up to the big waterfall, I mean, it's, it's really neat, and it's about 110. And we actually walked out, got in the pool, and the water's just coming down from about 40 feet. And one of the guides, he said, hey, come here, I want to show you something. And right around, and, and this pool was probably about half the size of, of these two sections right in here. And just great, water coming down, and we're under it. He said, hey, I want to show you something. So we walk over here, and these are big rocks and big boulders, and we get around one of these big boulders, and there's a cave. It's about eight feet high, probably 20 feet wide. We just walked in it. And, uh, but it went back a long ways. Well, it was while Saul was at En Gedi, and he's going after David. If you look at 1 Samuel 24, he goes in to relieve himself. Uh, it says in 1 Samuel 24, verse 3, he came to the sheepfolds on the way, and, when there was, and there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Or literally in the Hebrew, he went in to cover his feet. I, I like that. I think that's funny. He dropped his pants and covered his feet, and uh, that's what he's doing. And while he's in there, he doesn't know David's in there. David's back in that cave. He can't see David, but David can see him. And so what does David do? David just kind of, Indians real slowly up to Saul. And while uh, Saul's thinking about, you know, life, 
he takes his knife and just cuts a sliver of Saul's coat. Uh, Saul leaves. Um, David pulls out the air freshener. And then after he <laughs> goes back with his men, and he's on the other side of the stream, David comes out, and he's standing on the rocks, and David goes, King. Saul looks up, and he goes, David? He said, it's me. He said, King, I'm not after you. I'm not trying to bring you down. I just had an opportunity to take your life, and I didn't do it. I'm not going to touch you. You're the anointed of God. Here's your robe. I could have done it. I didn't do it. That wasn't the only occasion where David could have taken his life. What did David do? This guy is trying to kill him and his men. He shows mercy and kindness and compassion and respect and submission to authority. And in the next chapter, this guy says, David, who's David? I don't know any David. And David says, strap on the swords. We're going to go kill that sucker. Okay, here's one. I want to read something to you from Pink. This is great. Listen to this. Pink says, lay this well to your heart, dear reader. A small temptation is likely to prevail after a greater one has been resisted. Did you get that? What was the temptation? I can take Saul out right here. But he resisted it. So what happens in the next chapter? See, he resisted the big temptation. But then what comes along? A small temptation. And it's the small temptation that threatens to bring him down. He says, why so? Because we are less conscious of our need of God's delivering grace with the small temptations than we are of the big temptations. There's some wisdom, guys. There's great wisdom there. David overreacts. He's about to do something really stupid. Where's Wearsby? I like what Wearsby says here. Um, listen to this. He says, uh, the young men reported Nabal's reply to David, who immediately became angry and swore revenge on him. David could forgive Saul, who wanted to kill him, but he couldn't forgive Nabal, who only refused to feed him and his men. Nabal was ungrateful and selfish, but those are hardly capital crimes. Saul was envious and consumed with the desire to kill an innocent man. David's anger got the best of him. He didn't stop to consult the Lord, he, and he rushed out to satisfy his passion for revenge. Had David succeeded, he would have committed a terrible sin and done great damage to his character and his career, but the Lord mercifully stopped him. So I, listen to this line. David's anger got the best of him. He didn't stop to consult the Lord. And he rushed out to satisfy his passion for revenge. So he stepped on the guy's face with his cleats. Right? And here's what I read from that guy that did that. Never heard of the guy before. But here's what I read. And to me, it had the ring of truth. Uh, what I read from the guy was, I've shamed my family. I've shamed my name. I apologize to, to the guy he hurt. I, I, I've shamed my teammates. I've, I thought, well, you know, that's kind of refreshing to hear somebody say, I was absolutely, totally stupid. He says, I don't play dirty. I'm not. What happened? What happened to this guy? He just totally lost it. 
And he will live to regret that for the rest of his life. For the rest of his life. He'll be remembered for that. Now David almost had this happen to him. David's on his way to a bloodbath. David's on his way to a massacre. All right? Now this Nabal guy is permanent stupid. David is about to get stupid. But I want you to note what happens here. A good woman steps in. Sometimes what God does to keep men from stupid is to bring along a wise woman. Now, we've already been introduced to this woman. Her name is Abigail, and she is married to this, uh, to this fool named Nabal. Uh, so we're back in 1 Samuel 25, and here's what happens. Verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, uh, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. See, this just wasn't some slight. I mean, he really made David out to be um, a criminal. It, 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 you know, he, 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 uh, he disrespected the guy. There was no honor there. Okay. Yet the men, here's what one of the guys is saying to, to Nabal's wife. Yet the men were very good to us. We were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. Now catch this. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day. All the time we were with them tending the sheep. Now therefore know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household, and he is such a worthless man that, that no one can speak to him. Um, now, now, now catch that last line. This is how the people that worked for Nabal viewed him. Now catch this. One more time. Nabal is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. There's no reason to talk to the guy because he never listens. Um, So how do you get in the condition of permanent stupid? Well, I'll tell you how. You never listen to anybody. Nobody can talk to you. Nobody can get through to you. Uh, I remember years ago teaching at a Campus Crusade uh, uh, Christmas conference. And college students, I think we were in Denver, we were in Denver, and um, a lot of kids from colleges all over the Midwest. And I'd done two or three sessions, and uh, the afternoon session was just getting ready to start. They were getting ready to start the music. And these four girls walked up to me, and they said, hey, we're all seniors at University of Nebraska, and we hope to get married one day. We know you've got to get up here. You don't have much time. If you could just tell us one thing we got to look for in a husband, what would you say? And I didn't have much time, and I said, uh, well, I'd, I'd look for money. <laughs> I didn't say that. You know what I said to him? Uh, if you want to look for one thing, look for a guy who's teachable. If he's teachable, he'll be fine. If he's teachable, he can grow. If he's teachable, he can mature. If he's teachable, he can become a good husband. If he's teachable, he can learn to be a good dad. Um, If he's not teachable, I would run. Absolutely run. Man, I still think that's true today. Why was Nabal permanently, why was he in permanent stupidity? 
because he wasn't teachable. Nobody could talk to him. No, they, they didn't even bother to talk to him. They didn't even try to reason with him. Who do they go talk to? His wife, because he is hopeless. So how are you in terms of listening? I guess I'd ask your wife or ask your kids because most of us think we're pretty good, don't we? See, when you're permanent stupid, you're so stupid you think you're teachable. (laughs) But we really don't even know our own hearts, do we? So see, I, I guess the thing you got to do is ask somebody who knows you well. Does your wife say you listen? How about your kids? Can your kids ever talk to you? Now, there's a, there's, there's a point where kids just need to obey. You know. I, I remember reading years ago in, up around Boston, a huge storm came through. And the family was down in the cellar and just, you know, and then it passed and they came outside and looking at, you know, through the window. The father opens the door and a little four-year-old girl goes darting out the front. Just right under his arm, just pew, went outside. And uh, as soon as she went outside, that's when he saw that downed uh, electrical wire in the street just whipping and sparks coming out of it. And she was heading right for it. And he said, Christy, stop. She kept going. Christy, stop. She kept going. And before he could say it a third time, she'd never seen a wire like that before. She ran over to it and picked it up. Killed her just like that. Because, see... She wasn't used to stopping when her daddy said stop. Kids need to learn to obey, don't they? Sometimes it'll save their lives. There are times when you can't give an explanation. They just need to do what you say. But there are also times when as dads, they need to be able to come and talk to us. Maybe something didn't sit right and there's some We were harsh, and we didn't mean to be harsh. You know what I'm saying. Do they have the freedom to circle back around and come to you and say, hey, Dad, I I need to run something by you. Can I ask you something? And do you ever listen? See, that's how you lose a kid. That's how you turn a kid away from Christ. Uh, In another psalm, David said, I love the Lord because he hears my voice. So we avoid stupid permanently by listening. Okay, now let's watch this wise woman step in. Because you got two guys, one who's permanent stupid, another one who's about to be stupid. And watch what this gal does. Okay? Um, Verse 18. Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread, two jugs of wine, five sheep already prepared, five measures of roasted grain, a hundred clusters, clusters of crispy creams, 200 cakes and figs, loaded them on donkeys. She said to her young men, you guys go on before me. Behold, I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. 
Well, there's some people who say, well, 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 she should have done that because she was under his authority. He's an idiot. <laughs> and you know what? Sometimes you don't, you don't even talk to idiots. There's a, higher, there's a higher issue here. And you know what it is? A bunch of people are about to be killed. That's the higher good here. It's not to, not to talk to old clueless over here, but to save some lives. So she kicks in. She didn't talk to him. She just goes and does what needs to be done. And, and he was fortunate to have her. So she sends on the boys, and she's coming behind them. It came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain that, behold, David and his men were coming down towards her. So she met them. And David had said, Surely in vain I've guarded all that this man has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David, and more also if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. We're going to kill them all. When Abigail saw... Now, now again, Wiersbe's right. That's anger. That's an overreaction. It's way out of line. It, it's a punishment that doesn't fit the crime. And once again, guys, he was so gracious and kind to Saul. But a couple of words set him off. I identify with that, don't you? I remember one time driving to a church service, and I was late. And Mary was with me. And I'm trying to get there. And to get there, you've got to make a left turn, and there's all this oncoming traffic. And all these cars in front of me are making left turns to go to church. And they're all Christians, and they're all nice, and they won't turn. They're waiting for every, oh, come on, come on. Hey, you dumb jack, turn that sucker. I got to get in there. Sorry. In Jesus' name, I pray that you would. And they won't turn. And uh, so I thought, you know what? You know what? If I, so I just get out in the other lane, I go through, and I go down and take a left at the jack-in-the-box, and I go down and cut behind Kroger and go through the delivery uh, deal behind the grocery store and come out, and then I'll take a right, and I'll go right down there. It's 500 yards on the right, and I'll just cut through those uh, uh, lifeless believers <laughs> with no ambition, and I'll get there. And just as I'm swinging back behind Kroger, and I'm just, and I'm just about 30 feet from, from, the, from the road to make my right, this lady doesn't even look. She just pulls out in front of me. And, and she's not even looking. She's not even looking at the road. She's looking down. She's driving like this. She's looking. And, and, and then she stops maybe 20 feet from the road. And she doesn't know. I'm, she just stops. And the road had narrowed, and there was barely room for two cars, and she's just looking down, and she's just, she's in my way. <laughs> so I just, I just whipped right around her, and as I whipped around her to go around her, she speeds up and looks up at me, and she won't let me in. Stiff-necked, uncircumcised <laughs> Philistine, I thought. 
Well, I had to make an instant decision because she wouldn't let me in. And there was nowhere to go except to go out in the street. And I thought, I'll just go around her and just hang a right right in front of her. And I look, and these cars are coming to go to church. And I just gunned it and went around her. And as I did, I fishtailed and... I'm just peeling out and in my truck and, you know, just, and cars behind me are stopping and holding on to their kids and covering their eyes. And Mary said, Steve, what are you doing? And I finally get up to church and I turn right. And as I turn right to get into the church, the parking lot's left. And I don't turn in the parking lot. I keep going down the road. And Mary said, what are you doing? I thought you were worried about being late. I said, Mary, I can't park and get out and let people see me. <laughs> I just done a men's retreat for this church. And they're going to see me getting out and say, so I just kept driving. I just drove right. I drove all the way down to where the road dead end, and I turned around, and I said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to pull over here behind this big tree, and I'm going to let you out. <laughs> and I did. I said, I'm going to let you out, and I'm going to circle around. I'm going to go all the way around over there, and I'm going to park way over there. And you go on in, and I'll be in later. <laughs> and I sat in my truck for about 10 minutes. I felt like an absolute idiot. Because I was. I mean, I could have caused an accident. I mean, I'm not 18 years old. I mean, I... Unbelievable. You talk about stupid. Okay. But those people who didn't turn left, it was their fault. They started the whole thing. I sound like Saul now, don't I? It was my fault. Now, this gal, Abigail, where's my stuff? This gal, Abigail, she's quite a piece of work. She's not only beautiful, but she's got brains. And she's a woman of God. And what she's going to do is this, is, this is classic. She is going to encounter David, and she's going to help him move from stupid to wisdom. And the way she handles him is so classy. And it's done so adroitly and so well. This is a godly woman. I'm going to go ahead and tell you what uh, I mentioned Earl Rodmacher. I'm going to go ahead and give you his take on her, and then we'll read it, and you'll see this. Listen to what he says. Abigail's, she gets off the donkey, okay? Abigail's address to David is a masterpiece of charm, wisdom, and grace. She was able to avert a potentially disastrous situation in numerous ways. Number one, by showing the respect for David that her husband had not shown. Number two, by using humor concerning the name of her husband. Number three, we'll see this in a minute, by acknowledging faith in the living God. Four, by confessing the wrong done to David. Five, by making restitution to David and his men. Six, by asking forgiveness for the transgression. Seven, by recognizing David's right to the throne. Eight, by helping David to put the present slight 
into a lifelong perspective. Now watch what she does. 23, 1 Samuel 25. When Abigail saw David, she hurried, dismounted from her donkey, and fell on her face before David, bowed herself to the ground. She knew this guy was going to be the future king. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. Well, wait a minute. Was she guilty? No. But she's asking that he'll take the blame and put it on her. That's humility. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. By the way, the word Nabal, you know what it means? It means foolish. Foolish. It means stupid. Who would ever name a kid Nabal? But for some reason, they gave him this name. It's a common And you know, names in the Old Testament were big. They meant something. In fact, when someone often in Scripture would meet the Lord and have a radical transformation in their life, you know what would happen to them? They'd change their what? Their name. Because the name was so important. So she's saying, hey, David, this guy's name is fool, and he is a fool. I wonder if David got a little chuckle out of that. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. In other words, if I had of, I would have taken care of them. Now, therefore, my Lord, and you see here the honor, because he's the future king. Now, therefore, my Lord, now catch this, as the Lord lives. Where does she point David to? The Lord. Hey, man, you're the future king. But as the Lord lives, and we're all under him, aren't we? <laughs> She's just, this is just dripping with... Uh, understatement as the lord lives and as your what as your soul lives she she's she's appealing to his character since the lord has restrained you from shedding blood well let me ask you something had the lord restrained him yet from shedding blood not yet but do you see the wisdom here she's just planting the seed in his mind since the lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand. Now then let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Let them be fools. Now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant. Well, she didn't have any transgression. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord, for you, an enduring house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. David, you're fighting the battles of the Lord. You don't need to fight this one. And evil will not be found in you all your days. Should anyone rise up to pursue you and seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. Let me tell you what that means. When they had valuables back in David's day and they wanted to partake them, they'd wrap them in a bundle of blankets to protect them. You've done that when you were in college and you didn't have any suitcases or boxes. You take that trophy from basketball and what do you do? You wrap it in a blanket, put it in the back seat of your car. She's saying, David, God's going to wrap you in bundles of blessing and provision to protect you. But he will sling you out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord does for my Lord, according to all the good that he has done spoken you, 
and appoints you ruler over Israel? See, she knows who he is, just as Nabal knew. This will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord David, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord deals well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. She's talking to this guy. And you know what? She's not only good looking, she's not only gorgeous, she's smart. And she's a woman of God, and she's discerning, and she is ringing a bell in David's heart and mind. This woman is absolutely right. Now look at his response. 32. Notice the difference between permanent stupid and teachable stupid. Watch this. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. He knew it. And blessed be your discernment. And blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left to Nabal until the morning light as much as one male. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, Go to your house in peace. See, now watch this. See, I have listened to you and granted your request. Right there, guys, is the difference. Nabal, Nabal was so hard and unteachable, there was no reason to even go talk to him. David listened. And David acted. And this woman that God used saved him from stupidity. We all do stupid things. But when the Lord sends someone to you, or the Lord sends a friend, or the Lord convicts your conscience, see, you, you, know, you know what we got to do? We got to listen. We got to listen. What if Saul had listened? But he didn't. Now, 36. Then Abigail came to Nabal. She goes home, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. I mean, that's how stupid this guy is. He ought to be scared to death that David's coming after him, and he is completely oblivious. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, and he was very drunk. But she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light. But in the morning, when the wine had got out of Nabal, his wife told him these things. And his heart died within him, so that he became as a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. And then in 39 and 40 and 41 and 42, David takes this widow, Abigail, as his wife. Um, let me give you, a, real quick, four observations about, uh, let me give you four marks of a wise woman. Some of you guys have got a real wise woman in your life that you're married to. Now, some of you don't. I, I, you know, I don't know you. And some of you are laughing. If, if you're not married to a wise woman, you're not laughing. And I would guess in a room of this many guys, some of you don't, do not have wise wives. They might be unbelievers. We'll talk about them in a minute. Let's talk about four marks of a wise woman very quickly. Um, actually, I'm going to give you five. Um, number one, a wise woman 
can often see what others can't see. That's discernment. David said, you've got discernment. Discernment is seeing what other people cannot see. Number two, a wise woman can bring needed perspective. Isn't it amazing how our wives don't have the same perspective that we have on everything? That's why if you've got a wise woman, she's worth listening to. Number three, a wise woman can save a man from great error. And if you've got a wise woman, that's probably happened to you on more than one occasion. Number four, a wise woman can be a source of critical and strategic counsel. Let me say that again. A wise woman can be a source of critical and strategic counsel. And I guess this was number five. And really it's at some point under four, but I'll go ahead and give it to you. A wise woman prevented a massacre is what happened here. Now, you know what? Not every woman is wise. Not every woman follows Christ. Um, In contrast to a wise woman, the Eagles did a song a long time ago called Witchy Woman. Remember that song? Witchy. Get the first letter right. Okay? I thought about this carefully. I want to give you three things. And some of you, some of you guys are divorced. Some of you guys um, are, are married, but maybe to a woman who's an unbeliever and contentious and hard to live with. Um, that's a difficult thing. Let me, let me give you three things about women who aren't wise. I call them witchy women. Number one, witchy women will lead you into sin. Uh, Job's wife was that kind of woman. Job 2.9, all that happened to him, what did she say? Curse God and die. She obviously didn't go to women of faith. <laughs> you don't need a woman like that. Number two, a wise woman. Uh, no, uh, wait a minute. I, I, I missed. I went up to the next paragraph. Here's the second thing on witchy women. A witchy woman will continually, will continually challenge you to compromise. Potiphar's wife was a witchy woman. Genesis 39.7. Lie with me. Lie with me. Lie with me. Lie with me. A witchy woman will continually challenge you to compromise. Here's the next one. A witchy woman will nag and badger and manipulate in order to get her way. That's Delilah, Judges 16, 16. She badgered him until he anno- she annoyed Samson to death. She just annoyed him. Now, what do you do if you have a wife like that? You do the best you can do. And you follow Christ, and you love her to the best of your ability. And nobody ever said it was easy. I'm just shooting straight with you. Some people have cancer. Some people have financial hardship. Some people who have wives that are very difficult to live with. But that doesn't mean you cut out. Now let's go to the positive, because that's depressing me just thinking about it. 
Now I'm going to finish with five bullets on wise women, okay? Here's number one. If you have a wise woman, listen to her. She won't always be right. But listen to her. Hear her out. Number two. If you have a wise woman, respect her. Especially in front of the kids. And demand that they respect her. Number three. If you have a wise woman, honor her. 1 Peter 3, 7 says, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Number four. If you have a wise woman, love her by sacrificing for her. Ephesians 5. You husbands likewise love your wives as Christ, just as Christ what? Loved the church and gave himself up for her. Here's number five. This is for you single guys. If you find a wise woman, marry her. <laughs> you know what? Say, well, Steve, don't I need someone attractive? You sure do. You're you, you dang right you do. Because that's the first thing you're going to see every morning when you wake up. <laughs> you're going to see her. So you want, you want a gal that's personally attractive to you, okay? But hey, but you don't, don't put all your eggs in that Barbie doll basket. You find a gal who's attractive, and you find a woman who loves the Lord. You find a woman who's a wise woman, and you know what? That's the kind of gal you want to marry. Hey, you know what? Wise women are just at a premium. If you have one, you've been blessed by God. It's really true. Don't, sometimes they have radar that's unbelievable. They'll see something before we see it. By the way, most of us in here, our wives are on our team. They're for us. They want us to win. Let's respect them by listening. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. We've all done stupid, but uh, help, it, help us, Lord, to be teachable stupid. Help us to listen to your spirit. Help us to listen, whether it's a wife or a friend. Before we pull the trigger, before we pull the sword, help us to listen. Uh, you'll save us a lot of grief. Lord, and we just bring the things to you in our lives and in our past where we didn't listen. We've all got them. Regrets over what we've done. It never should have happened, but it did because we were stupid. Now we bring that to you, Jesus. And we thank you that you died not only for our sin, but for our stupidity. And you've covered it. When we come to you in brokenness and repentance, you put it in the deepest part of the sea. You remove it as east from west, as far as east is from west. Uh, we trust in your goodness and your grace. We thank you that you not only forgive our sin, but you forget our sin. Put us on the path to wisdom, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.